Have you experienced the power of God? What would you say to someone who asks you that question? Uh, what uh, would you point to in your life as evidence that you have? Have you experienced the power of God? Now you might say, well, Andrew, how can I know if I've experienced God's power? Uh, when I experience God's power, what's it like? Is it, is it like electric power? You know, you feel the power of electricity because you, you get a shock, isn't it? Uh, or is it like solar power? Makes you all warm and happy. Oh, when I experience God's power, is it like the power of a good song or a poem that makes me feel inspired and emotionally touched? Or is it like the power of x-rays? Very powerful, but when they go through you, you feel absolutely nothing at all. Well, when we look at our passage today, it's not going to tell us how we ought to feel because we don't experience the power of God by feeling. Uh, what we may or may not feel is our own emotional response to what God has done, and that's legitimate. But we're all emotionally different. Our emotional responses will be different. We can feel something, or we might feel nothing when touched by the power of God. I suspect it probably depends more on our own temperament than anything else. We mustn't confuse our emotions with the power of God, because we don't feel the power of God itself, but but we do experience its effects. So how do we experience the power of God? How can you know if you have? Well, last week when we looked at verses 15 to 23 of chapter 1, Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers that they would know that power. You come back with me to verse 16, uh, and we see Paul says he always prays for them. And he prays in verse 17 uh, that God would, would, would give them a wisdom, a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, uh, so that in verse 18, the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. That is, they'll have spiritual eyes to see. What does he want them to see? He wants them to see the hope to which he has, God has called them, the riches of the glorious inheritance they have, uh, God's glorious inheritance in the saints, the kind of things that he already explained in chapter 1. But he also wanted them to see in verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe? Right? He wants them to see that. And then he tells them about that power. He tells them in verse 19 that this power is so great. Uh, it's the power in verse 20 that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Remember, Jesus is a lifeless corpse for, you know, 36 hours, more, more than that, right? Three days, Friday to Sunday. And what happened? God raised him up. It was seen by many eyewitnesses. Uh, that's, that's power beyond anything we can imagine in the 21st century. But verse 20 says, it's, it's not all. Not only did God raise him from the dead, but he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. So Jesus is given the right to rule, not only the physical universe, but the, but the spiritual beings as well. So, so one day he's dead, and the next day he's the most authoritative and formidable and supreme being, not only in this world, but also in the unseen spiritual world, not only in the, now, but also forever. And it's God's power that moved him from one point to the other. And Paul had prayed in verse 18 and 19 that the Ephesian Christians would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened to know the greatness of that power, which he said in our passage last week, is at work toward us who believe. 
So Paul was convinced that this power was at work in his life and in the lives of those who trust in Jesus. And God wants us to know that as well. Not only does Paul pray for the Ephesian Christians that they would know that power, he now shows them, and the Spirit shows us, by telling us what that power has done. And so in our passage today, he tells us what we were like before and what we are like after God has exercised that power in our lives. You can see it on the chart in your handouts. You can follow it on the screen. On the left-hand side, we have the before. On the right-hand side, we have the after. In sin, in Christ. All right, Paul starts with the before. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Remember, Jesus was physically dead, but we were spiritually dead. And that's just as hopeless, isn't it? Right? There we were on the left-hand side of the box, in the realm of sin, dead to God, without a genuine relationship with Him, and completely unable to do anything about it. But being dead in sin doesn't mean we weren't active. Or we were, but in the wrong way. Uh, verse 2 says we were walking in sin, following the course of this world. Because you see, the world has an agenda, a plan, a, a way of working in, in the present age. In our society, it's all usually about the self or the family or some other group. And it looks different in different subcultures, but it's always a, a way of life that is apart from loving Jesus and glorifying God. And we were just following along, like everyone else. And when we were following along with the world, we were actually, without realizing it probably, just following the one that the world was following. Now, verse 2 continues, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So actually, all of us have followed the devil in his rebellion against God. We were led astray by him. That's part of the evil trickery and deceit. Because we never, we never thought of ourselves as satanic. Lah. We'd be probably very, very decent people. Right? Well, that's a trickery. When we're in rebellion against God, we're doing exactly what he wanted, what Satan wanted. It was only natural for us to do that because actually that resonated with our own fallen nature. Because ever since Adam and Eve fell, we've been born outside. We've been on the left-hand side of the box. Our natural inclination is to sin. We, we do it automatically. Right? You don't have to teach a kid to sin. If he's your child, he will sin just like you. And when we were in sin, we just followed those sinful impulses. And so verse 3, it says, we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Right? We were sinful by nature, and therefore, we had sinful desires, and so we just naturally sinned. But sin is inherently bad, and sin deserves its just punishment. And because of what we are, inherently sinful, and because, of, because we put our sinful nature into practice every day, we inherently deserve God's condemnation. And so, friends, we were, by nature, in and of ourselves, like everyone else, facing God's judgment. Or as the end of verse 3 puts it, we were by nature children of wrath 
like the rest of mankind. Now, that's not a very pretty picture, is it? It may not be how we saw ourselves because, because we like to compare with other people, right? The problem is other people also in the same mess. Right? It's okay to be the average student in your class, but if your class and your school is so poor that everyone is heading to fail the SPM exam, then the fact that you're an average student in your class actually should be no consolation. But you'll still fail the exam. And friends, humankind is rebelling against God. Humankind is following the ways of the devil. Humankind is heading for God's wrath on the coming day of judgment. And being normal is no consolation. That was, a, that was a terrible state. And we were all in that state. And we could do nothing about it. Sick people, at least they can call the doctor. Sick people can take the medicine. Sick people can do their bit to help themselves get better. But dead people, they can't do anything at all. It would take a miracle to get them up again. And a miracle they, they can't even help with. And we were dead in sin. That was our situation. Now, my friends, look at the beginning of verse 4. Because there you see two words that change everything. What are those words? But God. But God. Right? We could not save ourselves from this mess, but God did something about it. And why, verse 4? Because of the great love with which he loved us. You see, brothers and sisters, God loves us with a big, huge, overflowing love. Not because of who we are, but because of who He is. And because of His love, He was, in verse 4 again, rich in mercy. He was plenteous, lavish in His mercy to us. He did not give us what we deserve but instead saved us from it. And so it says in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Now that was a miracle. Paul is saying that the power that was at work to raise Christ from the dead and seat him at the right hand of, uh, of God in heaven, that power was at work in us as well. Jesus was dead, and by his power, God made him alive. We were dead, and God, by his power, made us alive with Christ. The very power of God that was working in Jesus Christ to raise him from the dead was at work in us, for us, towards us who believe. And so now we have a relationship with God. Now we have a spiritual life that's not just a product of our imagination. We were dead, now we are alive together with Christ. That, that phrase translate, made us alive together with actually just one word, but it means exactly what it's translated. It means you come to alive together with someone. And, and friends, God made us alive, not by ourselves, but in, in union with Christ. Right? Because when we trust in Christ, God puts us spiritually in union with Him. Right? In other places, we read in the Bible about our union with Him in His death. Right? When we are united with Christ, His death is considered our death. The punishment He bore on the cross was for our sin. He bore it to completion. But here in this passage, we, we participate with Christ in His resurrection. God made us alive with Christ. 
That is, in Him, we have this new life, this spiritual resurrection, if you like, now, as we wait for the physical resurrection at the end of the age. And that is why it says in the end of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. Right? Grace means unmerited favor. Right? God treating us in a way that we don't deserve, far, far better than we deserve. We deserve God's punishment, but instead God gave us forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ. But even that is not the end of the story. Because our union with Christ is not just in his resurrection, but in his exaltation as well. Look at verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that is where we belong. Right? Physically, we are still here in KL. Still struggle with sin and suffering. But spiritually, we are with Christ in heaven. We are reigning with him. That is our position. And if we are seated with Christ in heaven, then guess what? We are no longer under the rulers of this world, or Satan, or spiritual powers anymore. How can we be? We're, we're seated with the one who's far above all rule and authority and power in this age and in the age to come. We don't need to follow them anymore, and we don't need to fear them anymore. Many Christians still live in fear of the forces of evil. Now, we still have to fight them. We'll see that when we get to chapter 6. But we don't need to worry about them. They have no hold on us. If you are in Christ, you're not only alive with him, but you're seated with him. Far above them. And that, that's, that's pretty amazing too, isn't it? That's God's power. But there's more. Remember our future when we're in that left-hand column. We're heading for God's wrath. But now we have a different future. The whole reason God raises with Christ in verse 7 is that so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That is God's plan is that throughout eternity we will enjoy being with him. God's plan is that one day the sin and suffering, the sickness and the pain, the toil and frustration we face in this life will be no more. And we who have been spiritually raised will be physically raised in our new bodies. And we who have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places will be glorified with him. And forever we will continue to grow in our love and appreciation of him. We will learn more and more to enjoy the depths of his love and his grace upon us, the undeserving. And so for all eternity, we will continue to wonder at how mind-blowingly kind he has been to us in Christ Jesus. And we ourselves will be the forever living evidence that God is compassionate and generous and good to the undeserving. And forever we will live to the praise of his glorious grace. And friends, when we stand there in glory, we won't be saying, oh, I made it here because I'm good, because I'm smart, because I'm better than anyone else. No, 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 no. It will all be because of him. And he will get the glory that he so richly deserves. So, we have seen that God in his grace and by his power has moved us from that left column into the right column. 
from being dead in sin to alive in Christ, from heading for wrath to, to heading for glory. And getting from that left column to the right column is not something that we've achieved. It's something that God has done. It's something we're able to thank God for forever. Paul explained this again in verse 8. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. And we've already seen that grace is God's unmerited favor. Right? God treating us kindly, generously, in ways that we don't deserve. Uh, and so the basis of our salvation is in Him alone, in what He's done. Uh, and we know from elsewhere that it's what He has done for us in the death and resurrection of His Son. Uh, that, uh, and the way this comes to us is through faith. Right? Faith means trust, reliance, belief. It's more than just intellectual assent. It's more than just saying, yeah, 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 I believe it's true. Right? It's putting your trust, your confidence, your commitment in the object of the faith. It's coming from your heart. Right? Faith in Christ means believing that He is the Lord whom God has raised from the dead. It means trusting Him as your master, relying on Him to save you. A year or two ago, my wife and children uh, took me rock climbing at uh, Camp 5 in Wanutama. Anyone been to Camp 5? Okay, all right. For those of you who haven't gone, let me tell you about this rock climbing, all right? It's not actually rock climbing, right? It's wall climbing. <laughs> and you climb, up, you climb up the wall, actually quite high, uh, by climbing on these little colored things that are stuck to the wall. Now, it would be very dangerous except for the fact that you're in a harness with a rope that goes all the way to the top. And for me, the best part of it is not actually climbing the wall. The best part is when you get to the top because then you can let go and you put all your weight on the rope, right? But you don't just hang there. What happens is you come down slowly, okay? As either your partner or the automatic machine kind of like lowers you to the ground. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is like that rope. Right? That is the basis for our salvation. Right? The rope in Clamp 5 was perfectly strong and secure. And Jesus is perfectly able to, to save us. Right? And faith means trusting that rope. Right? It means letting go. Right? Trust the rope. Let the rope hold you. Right? It's saying, I believe. It's not just saying, hey, I believe the rope is strong enough to hold me. It's actually putting your life on the line saying, yes, I believe this rope is strong enough to hold me. And letting your weight go onto that rope. It's commitment. And the Bible tells us by grace we have been saved through faith. So, there are two things needed for our salvation, isn't it? God's grace and our faith. But we mustn't think, therefore, that we can share the glory for our salvation with God. Like He supplies the grace, we supply the faith. Yeah, half, half, lah. Okay, so we work together for salvation. No, 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 no. Paul goes on in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he says, This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one can boast. Okay? The grammar there shows us that the, this there actually refers to that whole complex of salvation, that whole package of being saved by grace through faith. The whole thing is actually a gift. Right? We know that if it were not for the sacrifice of, of God the Son, uh, we would not receive grace. But we also know that if it was not for the work of the Holy Spirit, we would not have faith. 
and that God the Father was, was behind them both. And so actually this whole package of being saved by grace through faith is a gift of the triune God. It is God's gift, not our achievement. And so once again from verse 8, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one can boast. Some people think that we are saved by doing good works. Okay? If I do enough good things that make up for the bad things, you know, you're going to put on a kind of like a, a scale, all right? If, uh, if my bad things too many, you know, I'll do more good things, so that kind of like, ah, okay, then it outweighs it, then I'll be okay. All right? In other words, works give you salvation. Other people say, no, 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 that's, that's not, not enough. You, you, you can be saved, but it has to be a combination of faith and works. You trust Jesus, plus you do all those things, right? So it becomes faith plus works uh, gives you salvation. But what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says actually both those things are wrong. Uh, look at verse 8 and 9 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Okay? Good works do not contribute to our salvation. Whether we are baptized or confirmed or go to church on Sunday or we go to Bible study or we pray or we give money for ministry, we help the poor, we care for our neighbors, we evangelize the lost, we help out at church, none of those things contribute to our salvation. Might be good things to do, but they don't help us get saved. Think about that rock climbing again, right? If I said, actually, instead of just using a rope provided, what I might do is, uh, well, I've got to tie a chain to the end of it because chains are strong, right? right? You better be safer. So it's half rope, and then after that, second half is chain, right? And, you know, my chain not perfect, lah. So I've got a few dodgy links inside there, right? Is that stupid or what? What will happen if I do that? I will fall, isn't it? Right? Because the dodgy links are not... Uh, the, one chain, one link on the chain break, the whole chain's gone. Right? And if I'm relying on the rope as well as the chain, then I'm going to come crashing down. Right? If I rely on my good works and faith and God's grace uh, to give me salvation, then what's going to happen? My works are not going to be good enough. Right? And I will come crashing down. Uh, and that would be a foolish thing to do. Uh, good works don't help us to get saved. But the reason for that, that, that that's given in this passage is not just that. Right? Uh, there's another reason that's actually even more important than that. And that is, if good works helped you to get salvation, then it would spoil grace. Uh, we could boast about them. And that would take the glory away from God for our salvation. Look at verse 9 again. He says, It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. Okay? It's God's work. It's God's glory. So where do the works come in? Well, surely the kind of things we spoke about just now, they're good things to do, and of course they are, and we should do them. The whole purpose of the change is that we should do God's works. God saved us from sin. He made us alive in Christ. He set us over the principalities and powers. Not so that we could go back and follow the world and the flesh and the devil again. He saved us so that we could serve Him. He saved us so that we can do His will. He saved us for good works. Verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God promised beforehand, uh, sorry, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right, so if you go away from this sermon saying good works are not important, then you haven't been listening to the sermon. Huh? Good works are very important. They are the purpose of your salvation, that you should glorify God by doing them. You are saved by grace through faith, but you are saved for good works. And God has a whole lot of good works that he wants you to do that he planned long, long ago. Right? And just as he predestined you for salvation, he predestined you for the good works that come from it. So please get on with it. So, implications. Well, let me ask you again. Have you experienced the power of God? Remember, you don't experience the power of God by feeling something. You experience the power of God by faith. God's power is manifest when you simply put your trust in the Lord Jesus who died for you. And God raises you from death to life. And he not only changes the direction of your life, but transforms your eternal future. So if you're someone who hasn't experienced the power of God, then please put your faith in Jesus today. Rely on him and him alone for your salvation. And ask him as your risen master to enable you to do all those good things that he's planned for you. And if you're someone here who does have a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus who died for you and rose again, then know for certain that God's power is at work in your life. You were dead. He made you alive with Christ. He seated you with Christ. He changed your future from everlasting wrath to everlasting grace. And now you are seeking to live not no longer for the world, the flesh, and the devil, but for the good works that God's prepared for you to do. If that is you, then you have experienced the power of God in your life. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. A few months after I first came to St. Mary's in 2003, uh, we had a mission here led by a Canadian evangelist called Marnie Patterson. Uh, he was a fine old Anglican clergyman, a uh, faithful preacher of the gospel. Uh, he actually later resigned from the Anglican Church in Canada because they went apostate, but that's, that's a different story. Right? Uh, during the course of this mission, I met a man uh, who occasionally came to our church at that time. And uh, he was here for something else, but I invited him, come, come and hear Mani Patterson lah, preach the gospel. And he said, he can't make it that day. But he said, maybe I can come back tomorrow. But uh, before I decide, are there any miracles? Any miracles? I, I said, friend, Every night, people are coming to know the Lord Jesus. Right? That is the greatest miracle of all. He laughed, right? but he wasn't impressed. Right? I don't think he's coming back. Right? That is so typical, isn't it? Right? When our spiritual eyes can't see clearly. If someone's hand got chopped off and it grows back, wow, we'd be very impressed. But if someone is dead and God brings them alive, well, you know, that's just what's happened now. If you think there were no miracles at the Mani Patterson mission, then you don't really understand the greatness of God's power. If someone going from death to life, from a slave or Satan to a child of God, from an object of wrath to an object of eternal grace, is not a miracle, then what's a miracle? Paul prayed that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to see the greatness of the power at work toward those who believe. 
If we believe, then we have experienced that resurrection power of God. And if we have experienced that resurrection power of God, then we have had the biggest change in status. And friends, a change in status demands a change in the way we live. Uh, if you're a Christian, you haven't been baptized, get baptized, lah, right? That's a good work that God's prepared for you to do. Uh, not going to contribute to salvation, but that's God's plan for you. You better do it. If you're a Christian, you're not doing anything for those who are poor, well, do something. The least you can do is be generous with your money and give to reputable ministries who will do something for them. It's not going to contribute to your salvation, but it's God's plan for you. If you're a Christian and you're not involved with the local church, then get involved. Lah. Make a commitment to be part of the gathering of God's people. Not just to turn up, but look for ways that you can serve your brothers and sisters. Not going to contribute to your salvation, but that's, that's God's plan for you. They're all good works that God's prepared in advance for us to do. And we're going to see them actually in detail in the second half of the letter to the Ephesians when we get to that in a couple of weeks. We will, we will, we will love one another. We will, we will learn humility and gentleness and patience. We will work hard to build the church by, by speaking the truth in love. We will purposely and consciously put on our new characters created by God for good works. You will get rid of lies and dishonesty and bitterness and anger. We won't slander others, but instead be kind to them. Just this week, I had two different people share with me uh, about changed speech uh, in people who have come to Christ. One of them was from our church. He said before he became a Christian, he was one of those, he was constantly putting people down until all his friends are scared of him. Right? And now he's such a lovely, gentle man, and his old friends are like so surprised to see what's happened to you. Uh, another one, a Malay taxi driver, uh, was telling me about a former colleague of his in his previous job. Uh, and this guy had been really, really crude in his speech. And then they came for some reunion. Uh, and he was so surprised to see the, the way he talked was so different. And discovered not only he became a Christian, but he became a pastor. Uh, and he's going, what's going on here? Hi. Friends, when we live the new life, we will be careful with the way we speak. We'll get rid of, of crude or dirty talk. We have nothing to do with sexual immorality or greed. We will avoid drunkenness and, rec and, and recklessness. We will honor God in the way we relate to family members, loving our wives, submitting to our husbands, obeying our parents if we are children, bringing up children in the Lord if we are parents. We will be faithful to our employers and kind to our employees. Uh, we will trust the gospel. We will proclaim it to others. We will pray for its spread. And we will pray for God's people, and especially those on the cutting edge of gospel proclamation. When, and all these things we'll see in Ephesians. Uh, and we will do these things because that's what we're created for. God saved us so that we can be his people and express it in the way we live. And if we are truly believers, then we will start walking. We will start living in this way. But just don't get the cut before the horse, lah. Right? Good works are the product of salvation, the evidence of salvation, the results of salvation. They don't help you get saved. We are saved by grace, through faith, for good works. And that is God's most powerful work in our lives. So brothers and sisters, with spiritual eyes wide open, let us be thankful to God for his power towards us and live out our purpose to do the good works 
that he's planned for us. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your gracious, powerful work uh, for us and in us. Thank you that you have raised us from spiritual death and made us alive in Christ. Thank you that you have seated us with him in the heavenly places and that for all eternity we'll be able to wonder and marvel at the, at the, at the amazing grace uh, that you have shown to us. Thank you that all that is a gift from you. And having given us new life, please, Father, help us to live this new life. Serving you in our homes, in our workplace, in other relationships that we have. Living for Jesus this week as we go about the various things that you've placed before us, that we might love you, love others, living out that, that new life that you've given us, doing those good works that you prepared for us in advance, that we should walk in them. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.